Uh, this morning, I want to begin in verse 30 of the fifth chapter of John. If you haven't been with us for a week or two, I want to remind you of what preceded this paragraph, which I want to start in verse 30. Uh, Jesus, uh, in the earlier part of the chapter, chose deliberately to heal a man at the pools of Bethesda, which is in the northeast corner of, of uh, old Jerusalem, right before you enter Temple Mount. And he chose to heal a man who had been uh, ill for 38 years, and he deliberately did it on the Sabbath, as John makes clear. And as a, as a consequence to that healing, the Pharisees began to challenge him and ask him, in effect, summarizing again a little extensive conversation, what is the authority by which he does this? And he makes the claim that as the Father works, I work which is, again, extraordinary because it was done on the Sabbath, and only God works on the Sabbath. His continuing, he created everything in six days, the seventh day he rested, but his rest is a rest of sustaining his universe that he created. And so Jesus is clearly claiming to be equal with God. And then in 19 through 24, and we went through that very extensively last week, Jesus offers one of the greatest defenses in the Bible of how the persons within the one God of the Trinity differ. There's mutual honor, mutual interdependence, mutual love, etc. We went through all of that. And so Jesus, I mean, it's, it's just a remarkable dialogue he's having with these Pharisees as he defends his deity. He is, remember what our definition of God as Trinity is, one essence of three persons who differ relationally and functionally. Jesus has just given evidence of that. Now, verse 30 through um, what really is the end of the chapter, Jesus offers six proofs of this claim. And I want to go through this. We started this last week. We didn't get very far. So I'm going to start again at the beginning of verse 30 and work our way through the end of the chapter. But I want to identify with you six proofs, six pieces of evidence, however you want to put that, proving, validating, giving, giving evidence for his claim. So look again at verse 30. I can do nothing on my own, which again, is a very uh, astonishing <laughs> claim of that mutual interdependence of the Father and the Son, which is what he's been talking about in the previous verses. As I hear, I judge, my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Him who sent me would be the Father. Remember, the Father sends the Son. And so Jesus, again, is just affirming that interdependence of the Father and the Son. They never act independently of one another. There is an interdependence. Now, verse 31, through the end of the chapter, Jesus begins to give six proofs, six propositional proof, truth claim statements, six pieces of evidence. You can put it a lot of different ways, but six proofs of what he's claiming. Proof number one is verse 31. It is his witness, the witness of what he has done, of what he has said. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. I do my works. I do messianic miracles. I teach truth the truth that comes from God. John chapter 17, which we'll get to later on in our study, Jesus says, O Father, your word is truth. I sanctify the disciples with your truth. So Jesus is a witness of the truth of his claims, but nobody believes that. It's not deemed to be true. Verse 32 through verse 35 is the witness of John the Baptist, a second piece of evidence. There is another who bears witness about me. I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and you have borne witness to the truth. And John, there is John the Baptist. Not that the testimony I receive is from man, 
I say these things so that you may be saved. He, meaning John the Baptist, was a burning and shining light, as I talked last week. That is an allusion to Psalm 132, verse 17. And you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. So the, the second testimony is the testimony of John the Baptist. What John the Baptist did, John the Baptist declared, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. John the Baptist cut the path for the Messiah. John the Baptist was the forerunner of the Messiah. John the Baptist baptized with a baptism of repentance for that Israel would be prepared for the coming of the Messiah. All of that is implied in these verses. But there's a third witness continuing. But the testimony, this is verse 36, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So the third proof or the third piece of evidence are his messianic miracles, his works. Now, we have talked about this multiple times, but I'll just remind you of this. When Jesus Christ shows up in his incarnation and he begins his messianic work after his baptism, his healings, his giving sight to the blind, uh, the, the deaf hear, he raises the dead, he heals the sick, etc., 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 have all been prophesied in the Old Testament. This is how you will know the Messiah. And so that's what Jesus is saying. Everything I did, all of my messianic works that I am currently even doing, are a testimony that the Father sent me, that I am doing my work in dependence upon the Father, fulfilling his will, because he sent me, which leads him then to verse 37 and 38, the witness of the Heavenly Father. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen, yet, and yet you do not, excuse me, verse 38, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom you sent. Now, there are several things I want to say, but again, verse 37 and 38 is the testimony, the witness, the proof, the evidence of the Father. The Father who sent me has borne witness about me. Now, there are a number of ways to talk about that. Certainly, it is at Jesus' baptism when the Father broke through and the Spirit descended like a dove. And the Father broke through, this is my beloved Son, etc. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the Father broke through and declared the same thing. But most of the people that were in spiritual leadership, Pharisees, Sadducees, etc., as Jesus says in the middle of verse 37, his voice you've never heard, his form you've never seen. You've never talked to God, you've never seen God. No man sees God and lives, the Old Testament says and you do not have his word abiding in you, or you do not believe. So Jesus is saying the testimony that the Father has given as to who I am, you don't even consider it because you are people of unbelief. So the Lord is getting at the heart of their rejection, at the heart, no matter what he does, and what he says, no matter how many proofs, testimonies, pieces of evidence there are, they're still not going to accept it. And so Jesus is getting to the heart of this, this problem, if you will. It's unbelief. Two more pieces of evidence, verses 39 through 44. 39 through 44, it's the evidence of Scripture, which of course would mean the Old Testament Scripture. Verse 39, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Now, men, that is, that is something you ought to underline, you ought to circle, you, I mean, you ought to highlight it with yellow or however you mark things like that in your Bible. 
But Jesus is saying something that is absolutely central to understanding the Bible. The scriptures, all 66 books of scripture, when Jesus is speaking, he's talking about the 39 books of the Old Testament. They bear witness about me. Jesus is the hermeneutical key of the Bible. Now, let me fast forward, way forward, and it's it, to Luke 24, and I'm only alluding to that because that's the only place in the Gospels that we have that. But Jesus has been resurrected. Uh, he is soon going back to the Father, and you have his testimony to the Emmaus disciples. They're dejected. They're, 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 they're saddened. They're, they're, they're all dis, dis, disoriented because Jesus has died. They don't know he's been resurrected. And he meets them on the Emmaus Road. And the text tells us in Luke 24, he begins to explain to them how all of the scriptures were fulfilled in him. That would have been a remarkable, that would have been a remarkable walk to take with Jesus. To hear him explain how everything bears witness of him. And I can't imagine what it would have looked like, but I think he would have started with Genesis 3.15, that the, you know, that tremendous announcement of hope in the midst of the despair of sin of Adam and Eve, that there is coming one who will crush the head of the serpent. And the rest of the Bible begins to unpack who that is and how he's going to do that. Well, anyway, what Jesus is saying there is, they bear witness about me is, is a very important proposition. The Lord Jesus Christ is the hermeneutical key of the Bible. Everything points to him. And the New Testament verb that's used over and over and over and over again, even in the Gospel of John, is the word fulfilled. Jesus fulfilled, fulfilled, fulfilled. And so this is, this is something that is, is important in the charge that Jesus is leveling against them. You've searched the scriptures to find eternal life, and you see, or you should see, or it is incumbent upon you to see that they, the scriptures, bear witness to me. Verse 40, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I did not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, yet you did not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Another Messiah, a Messiah that's to their liking, a Messiah that meets their expectations, you would receive him, but you won't receive me, even though everything in the Old Testament points to me. Verse 44, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another? And do not seek the glory that comes only from God. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. And I want to stop there before we, we go on to the final proof. Now, a couple of things about these verses that give the, the testimony of Scripture as to who Jesus is. Now, now, remember, when the Lord is uttering these words, he's talking about the Old Testament, because the New Testament books have not been written yet when Jesus is saying this. So the Old Testament bears witness. But do you see what he says in verse 43, or excuse me, the end of verse 42? You do not have the love of God within you. Let's put that another way. You really don't love God. That is, that is an, an, an astonishing charge to level at these individuals the spiritual leaders of first century Israel. Jesus is saying, the love of God doesn't dwell in you. And it doesn't matter what I do, what I say, I can put charts together that line up every Old Testament prophecy, and here's what I'm doing. You still won't believe. So the Lord, is, the Lord is, is mounting his charge that no matter what the evidence is, no matter what the testimony is, they still won't believe that he is the Messiah sent by the Father to be the Savior of the world. But there's one more testimony, and that's the end of verse 45 and into verse 
uh, verse 46. It's the testimony of Moses. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. And that is true because the, the Pharisaic leadership and their legalistic righteousness that they were championing and that they, they were trying to force on all the people of Israel was sourced in their perverted interpretation of Moses because Moses gave them the law. And Jesus then can say with the authority as the son of God in verse 46, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me because he wrote of me. And there are numerous passages that you could cite, but one of the more famous is Deuteronomy 18.15, where Moses is talking about a greater prophet who's going to come from God, and that over and over and over again in the New Testament is referring uh, to Jesus. But you do not believe his writings. How will you believe my words? And so the Lord has laid down on the table six testimonies, six proofs, six blocks of evidence to validate and verify that he is the Messiah of Israel, sent by the Father to be the Savior. And that interdependence between the Father and the Son, I do nothing on my own, only in interdependence of the, with the Father, in that mutual honor, mutual love, mutual relationship we have as Father and Son within the Trinitarian God. They rejected all that. So you see the, the, the heart of the problem in the first century among the Jewish leadership was unbelief. And you're, we're going to read, it's, it's going to come up quite a, 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 a bit down the line in our study, but we're going to read of one of the important events in, in the ministry of Jesus, where a, a very wealthy man and a very poor man, his name is Lazarus, they both die. And that poor man is in heaven in the bosom of Abraham. The rich man, we don't even have his name, is in hell. And this, this rich man is given the opportunity to see into heaven. And he begs Lazarus, send someone to tell my brothers that they must repent or they're going to be in hell. And the response of God is, they have Moses. They have the law. All of the testimony that they need is there. And they still won't believe. So no matter what I do, they still won't believe. And so Jesus has done the same thing here, laid out six proofs, six testimonies as to who he is. And yet the theme of rejection is hovering over these leaders. The, the, the motive of unbelief, lack of faith, no matter what the evidence is, they still will not believe. And that is, that is part, you can fast forward to the 21st century. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And the evidence of who Jesus is, the evidence of the truth of the Bible, the evidence of the veracity and dependability and authority of the Bible is there. But human beings still refuse to believe. And so Jim, I, I, you yeah. have this, tremendous, this tremendously important passage. The deity of Jesus is proven in 19 through 24. And now the proofs as to who Jesus is have been laid out. But that theme of unbelief and rejection is what... Jim, yes. Jim, I have a question for you. What motivates these people? What, what keeps them so adamant and aggressive in regard to this? What, what is it? And, and can you take that and apply it to today because, um, well. Well, I think in verse 44, you, you have Jesus hinting at the problem and it's pride. When you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes only from God. 
these are the these are the spiritual leaders who sought long for and received the glory from others. They would stand in the marketplace and pray so that everybody would say, look at Rabbi such and such. He's such a holy man. And Jesus condemns them for that. Yet all you're doing is receiving glory from others, not from God. And so I think even today among, you know, 21st century postmodern, post-Christian people in the United States of America, it is pride. It is, it is a a refusal to come to terms with sin and refusal to come to terms with Jesus and what he's done as the Savior who's dealt with their sin problem. And pride is at the heart. I mean, that's, Paul tells us in First Timothy that when Satan fell and, and rebelled against God, it was because of pride. Isaiah 14, 12 and following tells us it was because of pride. Pride is the fundamental, if not the only one, but it's the fundamental reason people do not accept the message of the gospel. And, and, and yet and at I the think, same I time, that, I think that's the same, a tragedy. <laughs> at the same time, people um, will will pursue this to the end of their lives, like uh, the the uh, rich man that you referred to. And what? Is, is there a power, you think, that other than the flesh, are they reinforced in any way by, well, let's say the Satan's treasures here on earth or whatever that keeps them from well, uh, themselves? I mean, that, I mean all, all the things that you have just said would all be a part of the of the matrix of, of of the human condition that keeps them from acknowledging their sin and their need for a savior. A, a passage that I've always found helpful is in Ephesians chapter two, verses one through four, where the apostle Paul declares that what he's doing is really trying to show that if God hadn't acted, we would have remained dead in our sins. But you're dead in your sins, uh, Paul says, uh, and he works through the characteristics of being dead and dead there means spiritually dead you have absolutely no relationship with god and he he focuses on the the the, the world the flesh and the devil in those verses at the beginning of chapter two that's the human condition summarized we are spiritually dead and we are enslaved to the world enslaved to the flesh and we're children of darkness we're children of the devil we belong to his kingdom whether, any, whether a person acknowledges any of those three or not isn't the point. Paul is saying that is your condition. And verse and in the next verse, but God, who is rich in mercy, and he begins to elaborate in, through verse 10 of chapter 2 of Ephesians, that the majestic doctrine of grace, where if God had not acted, and God had not in his mercy sent Jesus, for by grace through faith you're saved, not of works, so any man should boast. That, that in, incredible contrast between what we were, the beginning of chapter 2, and what we are, crowning in verse, verse 10, we're God's workmanship, we're his masterpiece, we are his trophy of grace. Only God can change this. And so God in his mercy will keep presenting himself to people. He'll keep presenting himself I have a friend who speaks of the hounds of heaven are after people. And God continues to relentlessly pursue people with his grace. But he will never force himself upon someone. Thank and so that, that condition of the human race is summarized, as I said. I like that at the beginning of chapter 2. Only God could change that. All right. This is a tremendous passage. Chapter five is, at least from my opinion and perspective, is one of the more important chapters in this gospel because you, you have quite clearly presented the person of Jesus in terms of his deity and humanity. And you have the evidence that, that is presented throughout the, the ministry of Jesus and throughout the scriptures and throughout the testimony of Moses as to who he is. But still, that theme of unbelief and rejection 
is beginning now to surface in the ministry of Jesus. All right, now that, that's kind of a real heavy theological chapter. Now chapter six, uh, we see- oh, Dr. Ekman? Uh, yes, Fred. Yeah, yeah. so in, in this, this is a, of the battle between the temporal and the physical versus the spiritual, and, and it, it really starts, and, and John starts back with Nicodemus in chapter right. three, when, right. when uh, and it continues on with John the Baptist disciples, and and uh, on through the, the other uh, instances that you've cited up, up, up to this time. So it's a continuing message, the physical and the temporal versus the spiritual. That's right. No, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. All right. Now, let's shift now to chapter six, where we have a, a very famous miracle of the Lord Jesus. Even people who don't read the Bible know of this. It's the feeding of the 5,000. But this sets out uh, then a series of teachings of Jesus that are, again, quite extraordinary. And he begins to elaborate on, I am the bread of life and what that's going to mean. But let's deal with the miracle of the feeding of 5,000. John, John has a little bit of, of uh, additional information and nuance for us to understand. I, I love how John deals with this. Now, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 6, after this, Jesus went away. So when John uses the little phrase after this, that's a temporal marker, he wants us to see there's some chronology here. So where is Jesus? Remember, um, he's, he's now, he's back in Galilee <laughs> because the miracles of chapter five and the teachings of chapter five, remember he was in Jerusalem. He was out at the pools of Bethesda. So now he's back in Galilee. That's the problem of, of, of John. He just shifts. But after this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee which is the Sea of Tiberias. Now that's unique to John. Uh, one of the names of God, the Sea of Galilee in the first century was the Sea of Tiberias because, and if you look at one of the maps I gave you, on the east, sorry, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee, Herod Antipas had built a city. It's called Tiberias. And he built a city and dedicated it to the Roman emperor, the Roman Caesar. So that body of water called the Sea of Galilee is also called the Sea of Tiberias because of that city that Herod Antipas had built on the west side. Again, you may not be interested. I'm, I'm always interested in details like that. But I, if you are, I just want you to understand why it is also called the Sea of Tiberias. Now, when John says Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee. That means the east side of the Sea of Galilee, because Capernaum, which we had read about in our earlier chapters, has become the home base of Jesus in Galilee. And you can look on the map, the one on page five is, is helpful, but you can see Capernaum is on the north side. When John says, to the other side, he's going east. And so he's on the other side, he's on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. In verse two, a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. And so again, Jesus is doing messianic miracles. He gathers a following because he's doing messianic miracles. Verse three, Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat with his disciples. Now, as you're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, it begins to increase in elevation and becomes what is called Bashan, or Gilead. Because today, you would know it as the Golan Heights, because it begins the, the, the elevation begins to increase quite rapidly. Because remember, the Sea of Galilee is about 300 feet below sea level. And I'm trying to explain the geography of this, and if that's helpful, great. If not, don't worry about it. But when it says Jesus is up on the mountain, he begins that incline. He's going from the Sea of Galilee, which is below the sea of level, 
below, uh, 300 feet below sea level, he's beginning to climb on that east side, which is pretty rapid uh, ascent. And there he sat down with his disciples. Now, the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So this is March, April. The Passover, it would be in March, April of the typical year. It would be today. It's always a spring holiday. And so that's going to be important for something that's going to happen at the end of this miracle. So kind of keep that in your hat for right now. Why is John telling us this? You're going to find out a little bit later on. Verse 5, lifting up his eyes then and seeing that a large crowd was coming to him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? So that's an interesting question that the Lord is posing to one of his disciples, in this case, Philip. So let's again review the context, review what is going on here. The Lord Jesus is back in Galilee. He moves from his home base, Capernaum, heads east, and a huge crowd follows him because of all the Messianic miracles. So in following him, it's now lunchtime. These several hours to do what Jesus has been doing in making that trip east. He's climbed, begin the ascent, which ultimately leads to the Golan Heights. He's beginning the ascent. He sits down and says to Philip, where are we going to get the food to feed all these people? That is a test of Philip's faith. This is a test from the Messiah to one of his disciples. Philip answered him, 200 denarii would not be enough, buy enough bread for each of them to have just a little. Now, I read from the ESV translation. Some of your translations may have the, the coinage measured out differently, but 200 denarii is an absolutely un, unimaginable amount of money. That's eight months of wages because a denarii was a day's wage. Most people that worked in the ancient world were day laborers. They worked for a day, did the work, came back and were paid a denarius. So Philip, probably hyperbole, but maybe not, maybe exaggerated language, but Peter, Philip is saying, there's a huge crowd out there. We're gonna find out it's 5,000 men plus women and children. 200 denarii, eight months of wages would not buy enough bread. Verse 8, one of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said, there's a boy here who has five barley loaves and two fish. Now, the five barley loaves would, would be like, don't think of like a loaf of bread you buy at Hy-Vee. Think more of like a cake, a flat cake made of barley. And two fish, they would be dried fish. They, they wouldn't be, he just caught them. It'd be dried fish. This was a typical staple diet. Barley cakes, little, little tiny cakes, and two fish, dried fish. But what are they for so money, many? Now, this is the major well-known part of the story. You have this boy who has his lunch. Somehow, Andrew found him, or the boy came to him, or the boy offered his lunch to him, we don't know, but he brings this boy to Jesus with his lunch. Jesus said, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the people sat down. Now John tells us how many, 5,000 in number. Now that was the typical way in which you referred to groups at that time. You counted the men. Now that's because of a very patriarchal society, that's just the way things were done. So if there are 5,000 men, not counting children and their wives or women who were not married, you're talking about somewhere between 15,000 and 20,000 people. So you can kind of get the sense of why Philip 
responded the way he responded to the Lord's question in verse 7. So now the disciples who were watching Jesus heard Philip's question, heard Jesus' response, heard Andrew's offer of this little boy's lunch, and the Lord says, everybody sit down. Verse 11, Jesus then took the loaves. Remember, these are like little barley cakes. And when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated. So also the fish, two dried fish, as much as they wanted. And verse 12, and when they had eaten their full, God's abundant provision. The Old Testament said, one of my favorite passages is in the book of Amos, but God's provisions are abundant when he is pouring out his grace. So here's the Lord Jesus. We just read in chapter 5, he's God. He is co-equal, co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal with the Father. He never acts independently of the Father. He's God incarnate. Now exercising the prerogative of deity, he's doing an extraordinary miracle. He's taking five little barley cakes and two dried fish and multiplying it such that every single person who was there, let's, let's use the largest possible figure, 20,000, somewhere between 15 and 20,000. 20,000 people have eaten their full. And he told the disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments. Why 12? Because there are 12 disciples. And every one of those disciples had in their hands as they picked up the remnants from everybody eating, tactile, objective evidence of one of the most extraordinary miracles Jesus Christ ever did in his incarnation, fed nearly 20,000 people. So you have this well-known miracle, but a miracle that evidences deity, supernatural power, and messianic abundance. When God provides through his grace, he provides abundantly. Everyone had enough to eat. They're full. And when they gather up the fragments, God has never got a waste. When they pick up the fragments, there are precisely 12 baskets. And by the way, that term basket, that's not like a little tiny basket that my wife uses when she's clipping off her roses or her zinnias or things like that. These are large baskets that would have been about half the size of a man, and they're filled. The abundance of messianic provision. Now, there are two clear results to this miracle, and they are detailed for us in verse 14 and, and 15. Let's look at these two results. Result number one, verse 14. When the people saw the sign that he had done. Now, why does John use the term sign? Because it's one of his favorite words that he uses throughout the Gospel of John for the miracles of Jesus. A sign that proves who he is. God never does a miracle to show off. God never does a miracle to just wow people. It is a miracle. Every single miracle is like this. It is a miracle to prove something that's true. It's not just doing the dog and pony show that people will follow Jesus. He is doing messianic miracles to prove who he is. So John chooses the term son. They said, this is indeed the prophet who is to come into the world. Why the definite article, the prophet? It's Deuteronomy 18, verse 15. What Moses had prophesied about 1,400 years before Jesus, what Moses had prophesied, the people, 
who witnessed this incredible miracle are saying, this is the prophet that Moses had talked about. He has come into the world. That's why John uses the word sign. He's not just doing a miracle to show off. It's a miracle to draw attention to an Old Testament prophecy and Old Testament truth. This is how you will know him. Result number two, perceiving that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king. So here's the second result. These people are so excited about what they have seen and what they have enjoyed as an afternoon meal that they are going to force him to be their king. Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Wait a minute. Hold on. Time out. I thought this is what it was all about. To get the people to acknowledge him as king. To get him, the people to acknowledge him as the Davidic king. The king who has come. The kingdom of God has come. But listen. What kind of king were they looking for? What kind of king? A bread king. A king who's going to fill their bellies. A king who is going to do these kind of miracles. Now, I don't mean to be derisive here, and I'm not trying to be blasphemous, but they're after the dog and pony show. They like the fantastic stuff that wows them and fills their bellies. Not the real Messiah. But you see that the messianic miracles of Jesus, and here is one of his most well-known messianic miracles, feeding this enormous crowd, they acknowledge that he's the prophet. But the second result, they want to make him king. They want to force him to be king, not the real Davidic king, not the real messianic king. They want a bread king who's going to fill their bellies, who's going to do the fantastic. And so Jesus withdraws. He dismisses them. He doesn't want that kind of acknowledgement. What he is looking for is what we read about in chapter 5. And that's not what these people are interested in. Jim, isn't there, aren't there some people, though, that might have received and perceived him as who he really was? Yes, uh, the, the, the chapter is silent on that. The, silent, the chapter doesn't tell us of anyone. The chapter doesn't tell us anyone accepted him. But it would be reasonable to assume that some did. The other thing to remember about the Gospels, and, and this, is, this is clear in all four of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the one we're studying, there is a progressive understanding of who Jesus is. They, it's, it's progressive. Jesus keeps doing things, keeps teaching things, keeps stating things, and more and more people begin to respond in faith. More and more people reject, but more and more people respond in faith. So probably, again, the text is absolutely silent on this, but probably there are some in that crowd of nearly 20,000 that over probably the next two years, we're still early in Christ's ministry, about two years, there are going to be more people that are going to come to acknowledge him as, yes, he is the, the Messiah. And a, a real act of faith, a, a real act of embracing him for who he is, not just to be their bread king who fills their bellies. Thank you. All right. Any, any other questions? I mean, it's a very familiar passage, but John, John's the only one who tells us that they tried to force him to be their king. The other, the other gospels don't tell us that. The other gospels tell us that they respond, he's the prophet and all that, but John adds, there's, there's something else. Now, I yeah, want you to, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. I have sorry. a question if you don't Yes, yes uh, Woody. It's kind of a contrast that he goes from in, uh, he goes from one area where they don't believe in him, and then he goes to another area 
and 5,000 people show up and I'm, and I was trying to think, well, is it the people he was talking about back in the other chapter? And then I said, no, he had traveled. So um, then you explained it, I think, when you talked about being the dog and pony show. Uh, you know, maybe that was it. Uh, they just went there because they were excited just to see what it was going, what was going on, and uh, and they knew they were going to get fed or something, or felt like they were, might. Is that? Kind of what this was just curiosity that these five people or the five thousand people showed up or fifteen thousand. You know, I, I I can't be absolutely definitive there, Woody, because the Bible doesn't tell us what's motivating these people. But because of their response and how Jesus deals with their response, he doesn't he doesn't accept this this trying to be make him king and all that. Jesus knows their motives. And so I think we can infer correctly that they are, these crowds are following Jesus to see him do these fantastic things. Some are going to believe. And over the next couple of years, more are going to believe. And but maybe um, even hoping that uh, they might get in on a miracle or have sure, a Sure, sure, sure. But again, not everybody's responding that way. But you do have these large crowds. And so this is what Jesus is doing. He's doing these fantastic messianic miracles to prove who he is. And when you read verse 14, the response of the people is a correct response. This is the prophet, and he has come into the world. He's here. That's a correct response. But then to force him to be king, you say, wait a minute, that's what this is all about. But because Jesus withdraws to a mountain by himself, you start to see, no, wait a minute. Jesus knows the motives. Jesus knows what is really stirring them. And so this is not the kind of Messiah he wants to be. He's not going to be a Messiah who just feeds people at a moment's notice. He wants their devotion. He wants their faith. He wants their trust. And so verse 16 begins to zero in on whom is Jesus really focusing on? Developing and maturing and growing the 12. Because Jesus is now going to build on this miracle of the feeding of the 5,000 and get his disciples to really understand what he's doing. Does that get to your question, Woody, or your observation? That, that, that was great. Uh, okay. Yeah. Thank you. All right. What time is it? Oh, my. It's, all right. Let's look at verse 16 through 21. Again, a very familiar miracle. What I would like you to do and maybe you could do this while I begin to read. Turn over and keep your thumb there in John 6, but turn over to Mark chapter 6, verse 45 through 52. I want to read that after I'm done reading the passage in John, because Mark's parallel account, he adds something that's quite important. And I, I want to I address that and when we, we go through this. This account of Jesus walking on water is also in Matthew 14, and Matthew 14's account is when Peter walks on water. That is not what John is focusing on. Look with me now at verse 16, John chapter 6. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea. Now, now remember the context. They just fed the 5,000, had lunch together. They wanted to make him king. Jesus goes up into a mountain to withdraw. Where did the disciples go? By evening, which means 6 o'clock, after 6 o'clock, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. Now, if you look at the map on page 5 or just think of the geography I tried, they're now headed west. They had been on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, now headed west back to Capernaum, the home base of Jesus in Galilee. It was now dark. 
and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, let me explain something here that, that needs to be explained. Because the Sea of Galilee is below sea level, hundreds of feet below sea level, and it's completely surrounded by mountains. Storms can blow off the Mediterranean, which isn't really that far to the, to the west, can blow across from the Mediterranean. And this, it's like a suction. It sucks these storms down in because the Galilee, again, Sea of Galilee, hundreds of feet below sea level, surrounded by mountains. It draws these storms. And so you can have a placid, nice, calm sea. And within a half hour, it's a raging storm. That's what happened. And so these professional fishermen, many of them, Peter, Andrew, John, James, etc. There's a strong wind. It's blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, again, I'm reading from the ESV, they're taking the measurement and putting it into American ways of measuring uh, uh, distance. They rowed about three or four miles. They saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near their boat. They were frightened. But he said to them, it is I do not be afraid. Now, I, I want to dispute that translation. It is I. It's literally a go of me. It's literally I am. Do not be afraid. So if you go to the original text and you could read Greek, it would say, verse 20, but he said to them, I am. Do not be afraid. And remember, I am is a title of God. Go back to Exodus 3.14. Jesus, again, is claiming in his utterance to his frightened disciples, I am, I'm Yahweh, I'm the Lord of the sea, I'm the Lord of the storm, I'm the Lord of creation, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and immediately the boat was at land to which they were going. Now, I want to go to Mark 6, if you uh, did what I'd ask you to do. Go to Mark 6, and I want to look at verse 45. Because Mark's account is, adds another important detail. Uh, let me pick up in verse 48. And he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind was against them. And about the fourth watch of the night, <clears throat> excuse me, he came to them walking on the sea. He meant to pass by them. Now, that's what I want you to underline in Mark verses 6, chapter 6, verse 48. He meant to pass by them. That translation is literally, they're translating from the Greek into English. That's exactly what it says. He meant to pass by them. But make sure you understand what that's really communicating to us. It takes you back to Exodus chapter 33, verse 19. It takes you back to Job chapter 9. Because there in Exodus with Moses, in Job 9 with Job, God passes by, in this one case Moses, the other case Job. What does that mean? Passes by to, to show, to demonstrate his deity. Only God can walk on water. Only God, who is the Yahweh of the sea, the Yahweh of the storm, the Yahweh of creation, can walk on water. So Jesus, as passing by, that doesn't mean he's oblivious to them. That's not what that means. He is demonstrating to them his deity. So when you take that passage, Mark 6, 48, with John chapter 6, verse 20, when Jesus says, I am, do not be afraid, put those two together. You have an extraordinary demonstration, a clear proof, once again, of the deity of Jesus Christ. Only God can walk on water. Only Yahweh, I am, the Lord of the sea, the Lord of the storm, the Lord of creation, can do something supernatural. You and I can't walk on water. Is this the but same God, who is the creator, 
of all things, can. So as he passes by, according to Mark, it is not oblivious to them to prove to them who he is. So again, what, why is Jesus doing a miracle? This miracle is didactic. That means to teach, to teach these disciples who he is. He's not just a man. He's not just a great man. He is the God-man. Fully God, fully human, united in one person. And in this, this remarkable miracle, again, which is well-known, unbelievers who've never opened the Bible have heard about this, Jesus walking on water. Yeah, but this I'm sorry, uh, what? This is Woody again. So yes. you're saying they were rowing across the Sea of Galilee. That's correct. And he might have been just walking across. He right? was walking. That's right. Yeah. So he was, and it's in the middle. Remember, it's in the middle of a storm. <laughs> yeah, they were going to go going to the same place, but he was walking. He didn't need that boat. Right? <laughs> yes. Okay. But I mean, this is this this is a powerful miracle that's didactic. It's to teach these disciples. And for you and me, when we read it 2,000 years later, and you put, to me, you put the Mark account and the, and the John account together, you have, again, clear, clear proof of who Jesus is. Jim? Okay. A any other questions? Yes. Yes. Um, is this the same, when it says, be of good cheer, it is I, is it the same I am from the, um, from John? Yes, yes. Why it's did they go, translate it's a it like that? Because that seems like a pretty significant miss when you have the the Old Testament name one of the uh, identities, the core identities of God, in the that you yes. are missing here. Is is there well, a reason for this? Or well, it, I mean, it um, in in both Mark six fifty and in John six uh, twenty. It is I, it is I. In, in the Greek, it's ego ami. I'm not trying to impress you with my Greek, but I just want mm -hmm. you to see that. But it is absolutely proper to translate that it is I. It's mm -hmm. perfectly legitimate to translate it that way. But for me, the, and it, a, a good study Bible will have a little note on that. A good study Bible, I have a little note. The it is I is a go of me, which literally is I am. And then they'll have in that little note in the study Bible, take you back to Exodus 3, 14, Psalm 104, and a bunch of other places. That what when Jesus says that, what he's really saying is, I am, I'm Yahweh, don't be afraid. I'm Yahweh, don't worry about it. I'm the Lord of the storm, Lord of the sea, Lord of creation. I've got everything under control. Now, did these disciples at that significant moment put all this together at that moment? I don't know. But as they would reflect upon it, and certainly John when he wrote this, and Mark when he wrote this, they're understanding. They are getting what he's really claiming here. And I'll say that for about the fourth time. This miracle of walking on the water is didactic. That means it's to teach truth. And to whom is this to teach truth? Immediately, in A.D. 32, it's to these guys, or A.D. 31 more likely, it's to these guys, the 12. They're terrified at this storm. Jesus is headed the same direction they are, but he's walking on the water. And their terror results in worship because they hear him say what he says they watch him still the storm and they worship they're beginning the progressive understanding of who jesus is i have another question on 652 it says because their heart was hardened they had not understood the loaves is this the same um heart was hardened that pharaoh experienced in exodus uh i well I'd, I'd have to do a little research there um russ on on the exact hebrew term and how it's used and what the septuagint translated but let me let me put it this way 
when Mark uses that term, their hearts were hard. What, what does that mean? These guys are still not putting all this together. I mean, they're, they're seeing so much. They're hearing so much. They're observing so much. Their hearts are not yet embracing the truth that this is the God-man. This is Jesus, the incarnate God in the flesh. That's what John means by that. So it's revelatory. It's like it's a state of being versus an actor. Saying, exactly. We've hardened your heart so you can't see yet. That's it's, right. It's more you're just being stubborn, or you have you don't haven't gotten it yet. It hasn't been unfolded to the point where you go, ah. Oh. Yeah, that's right. It's it's the latter. This isn't a defiant act of their will as it was with Pharaoh, because no matter what Moses did or even better way to say it, no matter what God did through Moses and Aaron, Pharaoh is not going to believe. He's not going to let the people go. And so you have that progression, you know, he hardens his heart, and finally God hardens his heart, etc. So, yeah, this isn't an act of defiance. This isn't an act of willfully rejecting. This is an act, they're still not putting all this together. Thank you. So I, that's, that's, that, that's a great question. I'm really glad you asked that. All right, is everybody with me? It's 10 up. Why didn't you tell me I'm late? Oh, you guys You're have on time. Keep... You're perfect. Yeah, okay. You have to keep me on track, though. I don't want to go over. Well, now, listen, we, we did very well today. A tremendous passage of Scripture, which gives the six proofs for Jesus' claims of his dependence on the Father, never acting independent of the Father, etc., and then a, a very well-known miracle and well-known miracle of walking on water, putting those two together the way we did. Now that is good because this sets the stage for next week when, verse 22, Jesus begins to teach, I am the bread of life. Why does he do that? Because he just fed the 5,000. And so now he's going to teach the disciples, what does this mean as it relates to me? And so he's going to, it's, it's a wonderful teaching, but it too, as you're going to see, is quite heavy with doctrine and theology. So if you have a chance, um, and I know you're busy guys, but if you have a chance, read in, in chapter 6 of the Gospel of John, read verse 22 through verse 40, if you can. It'll help prepare you for uh, what will take about 45 minutes next week, because there's a lot in that section I want to deal with. Well, good. I feel like I've been preaching and teaching for two hours instead of trying to teach. But I hope this is... Dr. Been... Dr. Eckman? Yes, Fred. So, actually, man's time is arbitrary Greenwich Mean Time, and I think we should be traveling on God's provincial time, GPT. <laughs> Okay, well, I'm okay with that, but uh, let me pray, and I'll get out of this hole I've dug for myself, all right? <laughs> Our Father, we're grateful for sending the Lord Jesus. Lord Jesus, thank you for your willingness to come, and thank you, Holy Spirit, for your, your work in anointing Jesus for his public ministry. And, oh, God of Trinity, Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equal, co-eternal, co-essential, all three in that one essence that can constitute God are involved in the redemptive program. And Jesus has just laid out a way in which we should begin to understand that relationship between the persons of the Godhead. And as we studied the very well-known miracle, the feeding of the 5,000 and the walking on the water, these are didactic. They are to teach truth. This isn't a dog and pony show that Jesus is performing to just gain crowds. As a matter of fact, it seems Jesus is interested in thinning the crowds, trying to help men and women to really understand who he is and to respond in faith. And even as Russ correctly asked in that passage in Mark, the disciples are still not completely getting this. They're not putting all this together. And that is true for us today. We come to faith in Jesus Christ. We accept him as our Savior. We understand that he died for us, was resurrected for us, 
that his death, burial, and resurrection is applied to our lives by faith. We become a child of God. But we begin that lifelong process. Paul calls it sanctification, of learning who you are, of understanding who you are, of trusting you for more and more dimensions and aspects of our life, to believe you, to have confidence in you. That's a process that doesn't come instantly. But we thank you for the word of God, which teaches us clearly who Jesus is. It is unacceptable to simply regard him as a great man or a great teacher. Everything he said and everything he did, far more than that. He is the God-man, and his death was sufficient because he was the God-man. I couldn't die for these men because I've got the same problem they do, but Jesus could because he was absolutely perfect. He could pay that price, and we're thankful that he did. Thank you for the truth of who Jesus is, that he is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, now incarnate, revealing himself to the twelve and to the people of Galilee and Judea. Many will respond in faith. Many will reject him. That's still the way it is today. Many will respond in faith. Many will reject him. Our job is to be faithful, salt, and light to represent you to a world that needs the gospel, needs Jesus. Help us to be men of faith and men of God who represent you well in Christ's name. Amen. See you next week, man. Have a great week. Stay cool. Bye-bye. <laughs>